Please give your attention to the word of God coming from the book of Colossians, starting chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Andrea. And Good morning. I returned just two weeks ago uh, along with Lindy Pecklow and Abby Warren from Tanzania. That's a new way we say it since we got back. We'll revert back to the normal American way soon, I'm sure. Uh, Two-week experience in Dar es Salaam visiting Faith Church missionaries, uh, Mark and Alyssa Dunker, their daughter Bethany, as well as Alex Grace Truex, who is teaching at Hope Academy there. And I think, uh, actually, Alex will be home within a couple of days uh, for a few weeks this summer. But my primary task was teaching a survey of the Old Testament covering the entire Old Testament in 14 sessions or about 24 hours of lecture and interaction. And I came home with this shirt as a gift from my class, so uh, some of you think it's not my typical wear, and uh, I'm very, very, very pleased to, uh, to have that memory of my time with them. Had two primary goals for my class. I was told that they were not that familiar with the Old Testament uh, generally. Uh, I wanted to give them enough of a taste of the Old Testament that they would come to love it and want to read it and really get into it. Uh, to read and love the Hebrew Bible. But a a, a second goal, which is really an extension of the first, was to awaken in them an awareness that the Old Testament stories, as many of them as there are, are actually 
one story, one continuous story, all of it coming together, the, the timeline of the Old Testament, the history, the poetry, the prophecy, one story that leads to Jesus. That's what I wanted them to get. And I was very encouraged with their response. Well, we're in the midst of a sequential exposition of Paul's letter to the Colossian church in Old Asia Minor, uh, present-day southeastern Turkey, under the theme of glorious. Now, ironically, after spending all of that time the last few months immersed in the Old Testament and how important it is for the New Testament, I discovered that Colossians, in the sequence, the way they are in our Bibles of New Testament books, Colossians is the first one that does not have any explicit Old Testament quotations. All of those before have plenty of them, most after, but Colossians has none. Yet, it still, as we read it, bears the marks of the Old Testament throughout, uh, particularly the numerous allusions to Old Testament ideas and concepts, and we'll see at least a couple of those today. But pastors Jeff and Joey have led us through the glory of the gospel, glorious new lives, glorious Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, glorious confidence, and glorious freedom. That was all Colossians 1 and 2. And as we come to chapter 3, typical of Paul's letters, having given the theological foundations, he now begins to move toward personal application. In light of the glorious gospel of our glorious Christ, how then should we live? Now, I'm calling Colossians 3 glorious foundations because while it moves toward application, it doesn't quite get there uh, it, in terms of detailed specifics. Rather, we, hit, we find foundational principles of application before we get to the specifics of application, which goes into the next section of at home and at work. Pastor Bob Blonick will get into some of those specifics next Sunday, and then Pastor Jeff will finish out the series on July 15th. The implication, though, is that we are in the process of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, and this passage is just packed with word pictures and metaphors of that whole idea. Verse 5, the metaphor of killing your sinful nature. Verse 7, and throughout the book, the metaphor of walking. And then verses 9 to 14, the, the bigger metaphor here in this passage, the image of getting undressed and getting dressed. Taking your clothes off and putting them back on. Not the same ones. Putting new clothes back on. It seems to me, though, that what we're looking at today really ties back into chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, with the rest of chapter 7 sort of being a, a, a parenthesis of, of further explanation. Uh, Colossians 2, 6 and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. There's that metaphor of walking. And there's another one, rooted, like a plant. And then built up in Him, a building, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Seems like every paragraph, Paul wants to end with something about thanksgiving. That's pretty important. Then the rest of chapter 2 is essentially a warning about what not to do, lest you get derailed from that purpose of growing in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 8, see that no one takes you captive 
by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and, and not according to Christ. And Pastor Jeff, two weeks ago, did a wonderful job of, of, of reminding us of who Christ is and what Christ has done and how we've been transformed through Christ, and we must not get distracted from that great truth to the philosophies of men. And then Pastor Joey showed us last Sunday that we do not enter into a relationship with Christ through a program of self-improvement or self-qualification. Chapter 2, 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Chapter 2, 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going into detail about visions. We do not gain acceptance with Christ by strict disciplines in following do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, ascetic practices or spiritually ethereal practices which Paul says would disqualify us. So if you missed either of the last two messages especially, go back to the website and and pick those up. They are just invaluable for our understanding and encouragement in this book. But having been brought into a relationship with God through Christ, by grace, on the basis of faith, we are called to pursue attitudes and actions that reflect our relationship with Jesus Christ. But the chief metaphor that governs the passage, again I take from uh, 2.7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Now there are two, I would say, dominant images in Uh, Paul's letters uh, that speak of the church. It's the body of Christ, of which he's the head, so the human body is the, the figure or the metaphor of the church there. And then the church is a temple. It's a being built as a temple in which God dwells, Jesus being the cornerstone. And here the greater emphasis is the building metaphor as we are built up in him. So I'm breaking the passage uh, into sections using this building imagery, starting with architecture, verses 1 to 4, or the design of what is coming. Then the excavation, verses 5 to 9, what needs to be destroyed, what needs to be taken down, taken apart to make room for what God is doing. And then the foundations on which to build. So let's get into the text of Scripture, starting with the architecture, verses 1 to 4. And this has to do with the focus of our hearts and minds. Architecture involves minute, detailed drawings that must be followed in order to build the building. But most of us, as we see a building being constructed, we we don't ask to see those details. We don't get all that interested in those details. What we want to see is the end result. We want to see an artist's rendering of what is taking place here. What matters most in the Christian life and in the life of the church is we get a sense of God's design for His church What will it look like? What's the big picture? Oh, the details matter, and we'll come back to them. But but what's what's the final result? Dip in at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him, with Christ, in glory. 
where is my life in Christ going? He is going to make something happen. What is that? Well, Paul constantly refers to this. Philippians 1.6, for example, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And that'll happen until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, what is that completion? Well, Romans 8, 28 to 30, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness or image of his Son. That's the end result, being like Jesus. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified to be like Jesus. Or 1 John 3, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We haven't yet seen the finished product. The artist's rendering here in Scripture gives us an idea, but we haven't yet seen it. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. This is the divine artist's rendering of what it will look like in the end. We'll be like Jesus, both in focus and in personal holiness, and that is a great, great encouragement. But how do we get there? Well, God does His work in our hearts, but we also have a personal responsibility in the daily details of how we live and how we pursue Christ. So what are the overarching principles here? More than detailed plans and programs, what ultimately matters, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Or verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This simply reviews what Paul has already described in chapter 2, verse 12, the symbol or picture of baptism having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with, up with him through faith in the powerful working of God, of God who raised him, Christ, from the dead. I heard a story many years ago about, from World War II about a group of Jewish refugees who were, as best as they could, hiding in a cemetery. And ironically... There was in that cemetery a grave that had been dug that had not yet been used, just an open grave in the cemetery, and one of the women was in labor and about to give birth, and for protection and safety, she went into that bottom of that grave and there gave birth to her baby. And just as that baby began life in a grave, So in Christ, for you and me, it was the place of death, the cross, and the grave, an empty grave, out of which came our new birth in the resurrected Christ. I love the language here. Your life 
is now hidden with Christ in God. Perhaps the best definition of the oft-repeated phrase by Paul of being in Christ or with Christ. He keeps repeating it. He, he flips it to the other way in chapter 1, verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then in verse 28, we present everyone mature in Christ, and then our responsibility, walk in him, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, be built up in him, chapter 2, verse 10, filled in him, Verse 11, in him you were circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism, raised up with him. Verse 13, made alive together with him. The point of, is this, that essential to our spiritual growth, to growing into the likeness of Jesus, is, is that we have a, a God-saturated mind to be focused on Christ and his gospel and what he has done for us. Not so much initially thinking about what we're going to do for him or how that's going to impact what we do because of him, but what he's done for us, in us. And then the implications of the gospel for my past, for my present, for my future, knowing what I've been saved from, what I'm being saved for, and what is happening right now in that saving process, the foundation of ongoing sanctification or growing into the likeness of Jesus with the assurance of becoming like him. Now the next verses tell us very practical how that happens. So seeing the big picture of the gospel transformed life, we now come to the process of ongoing life change or in construction terminology, the metaphor of excavation, of confessing and forsaking our sin. I've lived in Indianapolis now, as of this month, for uh, just over 14 years. Um, unfortunately, uh, oh, we love our neighborhood, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful place, but unfortunately, it's on the other side of Keystone Avenue. And uh, I've taken more routes to get from my house to the church to where I work then I can count. Now that probably just reveals my low math scores because it can't be all that many. But, but, but I, re, I, I do wonder what percentage of my life has been spent sitting in my car at Keystone and 96th Street. That's not, a, not just a few minutes. But now the time has come for 96th and Keystone to get its own overpass and double roundabout. Now, that's going to be awesome when it's done, but it's not done yet, and it's going to take a long time. And so I'm thinking, you know, what's the matter with this? I mean, the Egyptians built the pyramids without any modern technology that we know of, and it takes us a year and a half, or however long it's going to be, I'm not sure. And I'm thinking, you know, there's got to be a better way. Why, why can't they just go to Walmart or Lowe's or someplace and buy a prefab overpass and, and, uh, and uh, get a really big drone and, and just lift it up and bring it over and drop it down right there and it's done. You say, that's really stupid. Well, I know it is. But I hope it makes the point 
even if there was a prefab overpass that could be dropped on the intersection, it still wouldn't work. Because in construction, you have to tear down and you have to dig up before you can build up. It's absolutely necessary. It's like Jeremiah's call from the Lord. How'd you like to be to Jeremiah? He says, I've, God says, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And here's this assignment. This is a job description. To pluck up and break down. To destroy and to overthrow. That's two-thirds of his job. And then, finally, to build and to plant. Of which he sees virtually none of that. In the reality of road construction, which I know little, you can tell that, but they have to break up the current streets, and in the case of an overpass, they have to dig down deep into the earth so that ultimately when it's driven on, it will be adequate to hold up cars and trucks. Tremendous amounts of weight. It's going to take a long time. It, it can't be superficial. It has to be built with integrity. And you have to finish the job before you release it to the public. Unlike the situation in Florida a few months ago, when it came crumbling down, brand new construction. So it is in the Christian life. I, can, I could give you a list of rules, like in Colossians 2.21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. I grew up with those rules. I abide by most of the rules that I was given as I grew up. I think many of them are still good rules. But I still realize the insufficiency of them, and I've hopefully gotten a little less judgmental about others who have rules that aren't the same as mine. And I've gained a little more freedom than I used to have, particularly Sabbath rules as I see how Jesus handled Sabbath situations. But the point is you can learn a few rules and externally practice them. And I could definitely give you a list of rules that would help you to look better as a Christian. But it wouldn't deal with the underlying issues of your heart and the reality of who I am and who you are inside really will leak out eventually. Paul says, stop it with the rules as the basis for your acceptance with God. It won't work. Neither will it work as the basis for sanctification of becoming like Jesus. Something far more radical is required. And so verse 5, he says, put to death, put to death what is earthly in you. Put it to death. It's more than bad actions. But it's hard issues. Motivation behind it all. Don't make a list of rules. Deal with the real issue. But then Paul, who said don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And so we get the idea, I'm not supposed to make a list of rules. He makes a list. He makes two lists here. I would have thought from last week we were supposed to make any. He makes two right after this. But in his list, it reveals the deeper sins behind our outward behaviors, deeper issues that may still be there in spite of our self-improvement efforts that have focused on the externals. Look at his list, the first list. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, which means evil passion or lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So what he says that the last commandment of the Ten Commandments is a violation of the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. They all fit together. Paul makes several lists like this, um, 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, Notice how he sandwiches this list. He says, don't you know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He parentheses, puts the parentheses around the whole list, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, he calls them the works of the flesh, which expands and overlaps the Colossians list. Here's Galatians 5, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. And most of us see sexual immorality and impurity and drunkenness and orgies and say, hey, I'm good. I don't do that. And you miss the heart of the list, which we have to be a little more careful about what we claim. We need to be careful about what we claim about the entire list. Ephesians 5 is most closely aligned with Colossians. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Oh, there's a sermon there, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. He sneaks that in again. For you may be sure of this, that anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. How serious are these matters? Inheritance in the kingdom's at stake. He says that multiple times. What is the result of these kinds of things? Well, look at our text, verse 6. The wrath of God is coming. Now, I never, never want to read any of these lists without doing what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 6. As he says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And and I want everyone here to know, whatever your past or present sins, the gospel is adequate to save you from them. The gospel is adequate. Praise God. But the implication is that God's work in us to save us involves transformation such that we live differently than in the past. And in fact, that transformation, which begins at conversion, at the moment of faith in Christ, continues until the last day when we're with Christ. But that transformation in its infancy, in its growing to maturity, it becomes the evidence of true salvation. Right here, Paul says to the Colossian believers in verse 7, in these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now. But now. There's the expectation of a change. 
of a different way of life. And yet, a realization that the battle with sin continues and must be fought on a different level than do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. But the level of heart and mind. And now we go to Paul's second list. And it's a little more intimidating, frankly. Verse 8, now you must put them all away. If you're truly a believer, if you're serious about this Christian walk, you must put them all away. Look at it. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. Anybody have any sins to confess from this past week about your anger? about your wrath, about your slander, something you said about somebody else? This seems to be, I think it's more than implying that these are past sins that aren't completely past. They still cling to us. But because of their nature, they can be hidden behind a a veneer of self righteousness we justify our anger so common in the church we justify the way we trash talk one another we need to check our own hearts the the first list focuses on sexual sins and violations of the sanctity of sex the second list focuses on sins of attitude and speech which in my personal reflection the second list has far more damaging impact in the church than the first list? Well, that's not to minimize the seriousness of the first items. We should be alarmed by the sexual anarchy of our culture. It's a huge concern. But we're hypocrites when we justify our own emotional lack of self-control, our sins of attitude and speech, our anger, our wrath, our malice, our slander, our trash-talking particularly of our brothers and sisters in Christ, failing to address others gently and directly with grace. Oh, you know, you know what's happening in America and how talk is degenerating. From both the left and the right, they accuse each other of, of, of bad manners. They're both right. They're both correct. Bad manners come from all angles. Inappropriate speech demonizing one another. It doesn't mean there isn't truth in some aspects of all that's being said. That part has to be sorted out seriously and think about how it impacts the way we vote and public policy and all, all kinds of things. But that trash talk from both sides in our culture is impacting us. I was told years and years ago, Don't plan major church decisions in presidential election years because everybody's just more stirred up and it's harder to to plan together in those times. Well, I, I think that's been blurred now that it's just all the time. And so we have to be even more careful that we are different from the way the world does business in the way we relate to one another. Now, as Paul moves on, He introduces a new metaphor for the Christian life that overlaps between our second and third points of the sermon. It's a clothing metaphor in verses 9 and 10. Put off the old self and put on the new self. Now, the picture is very simply changing clothes. Very simple. Something you do every day. I hope you do it every day. 
Where did Paul get the idea? Well, in the second century, it became common in baptism for people in their baptism to remove their old clothes and put on new clothing, symbol of their new life in Christ. But that likely came from this text, not the basis for it. Well, again, I mentioned Colossians is unusual, and it's the first book of the New Testament in the order in which we have them, in which there's no explicit Old Testament quotation. But it does have several Old Testament allusions, and this is most certainly one of them. What happened in Genesis after Adam and Eve Eve sinned? In Genesis 2, they are naked and unashamed. Chapter 3, they sin. They are suddenly filled with shame. They are embarrassed. They are hiding. And they make themselves loin coverings of fig leaves to cover their shame. Inadequate. That is not caught on in the normal clothing industry. What happens? One of the earliest images of God's rescue of humanity from their sin was to give them new clothing, to replace their old clothing. 321, Genesis 321, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, the most common point brought out of that is that an animal died. Blood was shed for them, for their salvation, for their covering. And I think that's true. I think that's an early hint of the gospel. But the focus is picked up in Isaiah 61.10, putting greater emphasis on the clothing itself. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And that is the beauty of the gospel, that we sinners are covered with the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is imputed to us. It is given to us. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. It's not just an external covering. It is a complete transfer of his righteousness to us. It's a beautiful picture. And now Paul uses this language in not only justification, but in sanctification, verses 9 and 10, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Ah, did you see that? That's another definite Old Testament allusion. As we were created, Genesis 1, in the image of God. Now that didn't totally disappear in chapter 3, but it was seriously marred as we were separated from God by sin, and yet the promise is that we are being recreated in the very image or likeness of Jesus. But it's the language of already and not yet. Salvation has been received but not fully applied. It's still being applied, and so on the basis of that transformation, and our time is gone, but I'm going to have to just wrap this up quickly. Foundations starting to get to the practical application here in verses 10 to 17, foundations for Christian living, this lifelong process of growing into the likeness of Christ. There's a a treasure trove of application here. Uh, We'll just have to make a list without too much comment. Uh, Four items. Number one, we must live as the one body of Christ. Here there's no Jew or Greek. Look at verse 11. 
circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Well, this text needs a sermon by itself. The world divides us into nationality and religious background and language and ethnicity. Barbarians, what's a barbarian? It's somebody who doesn't speak Greek. Any non-barbarians here? Our language just sounds like bar, 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 bar. So you're not Greek, you're not much. I've seen t-shirts like that for various groups in the national pride, whatever. Scythians, reputed to be savage and ruthless. So if you're a Scythian, that is tagged on you regardless of your personal experience. That's just the way those people are. They're savage and ruthless. Economic status, social class, Paul will have none of that. He says Christ is all and in all. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And in the midst of the immigration debate today, how do we live this out? While we recognize our government's role and responsibility to secure our borders, what's our responsibility as believers toward the stranger and alien among us? On this 4th of July, uh, it brings out the patriotism that is just right on the surface with me all the time. I love my country. I plan to go Tuesday night out to a symphony on the prairie in the big uh, star-spangled symphony, I guess it's called, out, out there with the ISO. Wonderful time. But more and more, Scripture is driving me to realize that as much as I love my country, I'm an alien here. I'm an alien here. An alien resident my citizenship is in heaven. It is incomparable. My, my, my American citizenship is incomparable to my citizenship in heaven. And that citizenship we share with people all over the world in Christ. A deeper bond by far than the stars and the stripes, as much as I love them. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, for there is... Uh, there's no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Number two, we must live out the graces of the Christian life. Galatians, this is called fruit of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13 is the description of love. You find this one way or another in all of Paul's letters. Look at verses 12 to 14. Put on then God's, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There's the priority of healthy relationships with one another, church. Don't, don't despise this teaching. This is vital. What Jesus prayed for in John 17, what Paul appeals for constantly, for us to live in peace and harmony and acceptance with one another. Number three, we must devote ourselves to the means of spiritual growth. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankful, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He gets that in again. Yes, that means being in God's word every day, in your home, on your own, 
It means pursuing God always, daily, regularly. It means coming together as a body of believers in the local church to worship God together, and that includes preaching, singing, expressions of thankfulness. And then number four, keep first things first. Uh, again, got home from uh, Tanzania two weeks ago. Next Wednesday and Thursday, uh, I had the blessing with uh, our new pastor, Nathan, to do grilled pastor. I love that. It's my favorite thing every summer in, in ministry. Do grilled pastor with the junior high and senior high students two, two successive nights. And lots of questions from all over the map, including the second time in three years, how many countries have you visited? And uh, I don't know, so they have to help me, and we go all over the map looking for uh, those countries. And uh, don't be too impressed. It's not near as long as many of yours. But my favorite question this year, I don't remember which, which night it was asked, but the question, what's the meaning of life? I hope you're all ready with an answer to that. What's the meaning of life? You, maybe you have to define a little bit the question before you can answer it, but, but I take it to mean the ultimate purpose of all things. Stated in various ways throughout the Bible, the essential answer is right here in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Or as stated in Isaiah 43, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made, all things for his glory. That's the purpose of my life. That's the purpose of your life. That's the purpose of any life that really is going to matter in eternity. And so our mission is an extension of that ultimate purpose, declaring the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Father, Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the church. Thank you for the scriptures that teach us. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear, to face the reality of our own experience, and to glorify your name in our relationships with each other through your church. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.